0: We continue with our study of the book of Romans, and we have been trying to reinforce and try and maintain the discipline of keeping the entire book together as one collective thought and argument surrounding Paul's passion for the church in Rome to be unified, both Jew and Gentile, in the centrality and the only thing that can truly unify humanity at all, which is its Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we talked about this at the very beginning in the sense of, of a vehicle, my old green, be- well not mine, Richard's, green beast that has been disassembled for many decades at the farm in Wyoming, and it's been a while since I've given you an update. Uh, we've ordered now some brackets so that we can reinstall the power steering pump because that was missing. So the, uh, the, the, the beast is continuing to be rebuilt, but now it's snowing and there's no shop So we're not sure how quickly it will be fixed. But as that progress is slow, uh, so is reconstructing this idea that instead of having disparate theologies where we sometimes add parts that aren't even there or leave parts off because they challenge our view of the way things should be. We are walking through this section of 9, 10, and 11, which sometimes people feel like is an extraneous bracket on the end or the side of Romans, that somehow Paul, because of various reasons unknown to us, goes off on a three-chapter excursus to talk about the final condition of his brothers and sisters in the flesh, the children of Israel And so, we are trying to reinforce the idea that actually, in the midst of what Paul has said in chapter 1, what he said in chapter 3 and 4, what he said about Abraham, and what he said in chapter 8 about the nature of our salvation and the work of God in the midst of that through Christ, that far from being a different excursus, it really strikes at the heart of our understanding of what it means to be believers and what it means to engage with God on the basis of Christ as the only means by which we have relationship and peace with God. And so bear with me as we read this morning, chapter 9, verses 30 through 10 verses 30, uh, through um, verse 13, With this idea, with this truth holding together that what we have here is an integral part that flows directly from what we learned in chapters 7 and 8 of Romans. Hear now God's word. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that led to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him ...will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart desires and prays to God for them. For them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes for moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that a person who because who, the person who does the commandments shall live by live by them but the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven what is to bring, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your hearts, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we again ask for your spirit. We need the presence, the enlivening of our hearts, the opening of our eyes and our ears to hear the good news and to be able to respond. And we ask, Lord, that again, you would refresh your people through the preaching of your word. And also, Lord, that you would protect the preaching of your word and that anything that is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people would be quickly forgotten. Amen. So throughout Paul's writing, We have talked more than once about how he continues to pull in all of Scripture. All of Scripture, we know, is God-breathed and useful for instruction. And we know that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus because the story in Luke tells us that on the road, uh, that the disciples, confused as they walked along with Jesus, had Jesus tell them from the law and the prophets all the way through how everything pointed Jesus. And in a moment like this, I want us to remember that God has always been doing the same things. We haven't always noticed that, but what is true of a covenantly faithful God is that he continues to be faithful to that covenant, even if we sometimes get lost in the middle of it. So just as an illustration, what do Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Naaman the Syrian all have in common? They're all, their ancestors of, well, not Naaman, of Jesus. Yeah, that's true. We, but they're also not Israelites. All of them were saved by faith. Just like Abraham's initial salvation was one of faith in God before the covenant was completely laid out for him, in the same way... Tamar is declared righteous because of her faith in the God of her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab is saved from destruction because of her faith and knowledge in the true God and saved from the disaster that is Jericho. Ruth makes some amazing statements of faith in that marvelous book, and she is saved by her faith in God. And Naaman... The Syrian, just to throw one guy in there, has leprosy. He comes to a saving knowledge of who the true God is through God's healing of him. And his confession is one of faith because there's nothing that he could do to earn it. We have in Scripture this spiral effect where certain themes and realities keep getting circled back to. And God does build on that, and he does bring added richness and newness, each retelling of the story. And so what we have here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is really a retelling of the story of Ruth and Rahab, a retelling of story of how Gentiles are brought in and actually how God's people... Are faithful Because in the midst of the story of Ruth, in the midst of the story of Rahab, is the challenge of God's people to believe in faith on his salvation. Joshua has to lead God's people around the city of Jericho without swords, but with just trumpets in faith that God would win the victory for them. And there were those who didn't believe. And in the same way, the story of Ruth tells us that there was a kinsman redeemer who did not have faith in God that he would be secure in taking on Ruth and all of the potential complications of bringing a Moabite woman into your household. And he says, look, if I'm going to lose my name, somebody else should take it. And Boaz, understanding the nature of covenant faithfulness, is willing to give up his name that Ruth and Naomi would be restored. We have in this text two aspects of God's righteousness. Righteousness by faith as it relates to the law and the righteousness by faith as it relates to the transformation of the heart. To begin with, the righteousness of Uh, by faith that is connected to the law. Verse 33 has two quotations from Isaiah. One from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4, which is the stumbling block, and then the encouragement from uh, 28, verse 16 of Isaiah, which talks about a cornerstone that if you put your faith in, none will be put to shame. And Paul, in his complicated and marvelous way, presses these two visions of a stone into one challenging illustration. That the stone itself, because it is singularly Christ alone, that it symbolizes one way, that it symbolizes only one foundation, that it symbolizes a particular manner by which God brings salvation. And if you miss that, then your foundation doesn't have a cornerstone. And what you may find is you trip over it, walking to go find what you think should be the cornerstone. The very thing that should help define and give uh, solidness to our existence becomes the very thing we look past, and in looking past it to something else, we trip over it because we don't notice it. The context of Isaiah is warning God's people of a time when they have not recognized the character and nature of God, and are being called back to a right living with God, so that they can avoid the coming exile. They choose not to heed Isaiah, but much like Isaiah's generation, the generation that saw Jesus also, Paul says, had great zeal in certain ways and certainly were happy to use the name of Yahweh and would certainly argue that they were trying to be faithful to the covenant. And yet in so doing, they were still missing the key nature of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do. It is, as Paul says, not that they lacked zeal, but they, did, they didn't act in accordance with knowledge. And the law was supposed to be the means by which they gained knowledge, not righteousness. And when we confuse what the law of God tells us about his character, as the kids are studying the catechism and you have opportunity to go through those catechisms with them, the point isn't simply to not steal or not lie or not have inappropriate relationships. The point is, God's character is one of truth-telling. And what a rich world it is when we speak truth in love, even though it can be difficult, just like God's words in Isaiah. And God is a faithful God. Even when we run around on God, God does not run around on us. And so what we find is that the richness of God's character is to communicate into the world loving, faithfulness, and the desire to have the richness of intimacy with the one who loves us unconditionally for our entire life. If we teach the law to our children in ways in which they're simply learning, don't do this or you're bad, or don't do this or something worse will happen to you. Instead of saying, let me tell you about the character and nature of a God who loves you enough to send his son. And this is the way he shows his singularity in love. Why do we not covet? Because God has given us everything and is generous. Because we have Jesus, therefore we can love others. The Pharisees and the Jewish folks of Paul's time knew the law. They were zealous for it. But if it leads you to persecute and kill other Jewish people who are saying the Messiah is here, as Paul did, you don't have knowledge of what the law is teaching you about the God who created you. 30 through 32 of chapter 9 talk about faith as a mark membership for both Jew and Gentile. It is a leveling. It is a way in which God reminds us of what it is that has always saved his people. It has always been by faith. In, verses, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that zeal does not need to be removed, but it needs to be the zeal transformed. Transformed how? Well, this is where he has to go back into the prophets again and talk about a zeal transformed by the heart of God. Not a distancing from the law, not a rejection of the law, but a knowledge of the law that points to the character of God, not a knowledge of the law that leads to an attempt at self-righteousness or self-justification. This is why Paul never denigrates knowledge of the law or never stops using quotations from the Old Testament to reaffirm what God is doing. It's been transformed by Jesus. Because now he has knowledge by the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about righteousness by faith and the heart, we see in verse 10, what, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, this passage that the scholars tell us is really structured by... Deuteronomy chapter 30, one that we've all memorized. We could though, we should, because it is a beautiful passage at the end of Moses' life as he challenges and speaks to the children of Israel, giving them the stark reality that they will face once they enter the promised land, whether they will stay true to God and following Him and loving Him, or whether they will choose death. And we have, again, in this spiral formation of how God's narrative and human tendencies wrap back around and God reveals himself again and again and again to his people, we see that there are four components. There is failure. We read about one of their failures this morning in our first reading. They complained against God in the wilderness, even though he had provided for them. There is some form of exile or death. There is then repentance, and then there is assurance. That's in these very texts. So we see that there was the law in verses 5 through 14, and that they, the law convicted them, and there was failure. And then the question was, is God far off? And what does it say? The word is near you, verse 8 says. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And so is God far off? Is exile our, our lot? No, God pursues us. And then there is repentance. And repentance is declaring faith in Jesus Christ by our words and by our actions and out of the abundance of the heart that the Spirit gives. And then there is the assurance that we see at the end, because he again quotes from both Isaiah 28, but then also Joel 2, 32, when he says in verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The assurance is no longer who your daddy was, but who your heavenly father is. That's always been true. That's what Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Naaman reminded us. There was a particularity for the Jewish people to be the means by which the Messiah came. It was a heavy burden, but there was always the truth. And now it is even more evident in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the work of Paul as a missionary, that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And then the Joel passage. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is an Old Testament prophet. Not just speaking to Jewish people, saying every Jewish person who calls on the name of the Lord. And we have to internalize that Today, as we exist 2,000 years down the road and have churches and church cultures and Christendom and ways in which laws creep into our lives. Ways in which we begin to distinguish who is and who isn't better. And whether it is welcoming someone who used to be a madam into our church and having her marry one of the rock-solid citizens of our congregation and her feeling no less significant than any other person like Rahab was welcomed in, or whether or not a woman from a despised social group becomes the wife of one of our most powerful and wealthy church members and is restored to glory in her own way, whether or not those secret little ways in which... We can, and it's not uncommon, and most of us have experienced those subtle judgments in the church by where you've come from, or what you've done, or what you may have done in the past, or how you like to worship. Whether one is now, this conversation shows how old I am whether or not one believes that you can only play the organ or the piano or whether one's worship should be more exuberant or more staid. And in what ways have certain parts of our culture infused our worship in ways that it makes it more difficult for folks who come from other backgrounds to worship in the same setting? That's fine as long as we're not saying, and that's the right way to worship. Worship that's slow and quiet is more spiritual and reflective than worship that is loud and emotional and rambunctious. Who, Who says? I can find places in Scripture where I am told to be quiet and know that He is God. And then I'm also told to break forth with great shouts and joy and dancing and laughing and loud instrumentation. It's the sneaky way in which laws are adopted by cultures of what is and is not worshipful, what is and is not honoring to God that can become the subtle way in which this text applies to us today. How do we distinguish between Jew and Gentile? What ways in which have we added laws that determine whether or not we think somebody is really saved? That is more than confessing that Jesus is Lord. The reason this spiral is important and even though we have the Holy Spirit to believe that somehow we have transcended in this already not yet, where we already have the Holy Spirit but not yet is sin completely away from us, that we are above falling into the same traps of having zeal without knowledge. Why wouldn't we? Why would we be afraid to ask the question? Because our righteousness was never determined about whether or not our church did or didn't slip into forms of legalism, or did or didn't slip into forms of judging people beyond their confession of Christ as Lord and Savior. It is with confession that we are made right and clean, right and knowledgeable, right and and listening before the God who is willing to speak, who is near us, who puts his words in our mouth. The good news of the gospel is that God continues to bring in Tamars and Rahabs and Ruths and Naamans. His desire is to see his church filled out by every tribe, every nation, and every tongue and that it is our great calling to be those who live out of the great truth that is not a theological abstraction, that all are justified by Christ through faith alone. That has got to be the most practical doctrine we apply every day. And When we do, the church does become a place for the Rahabs, the Rus, the Naamans, and all who would be called. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We have all experienced the peace that comes from knowing that we are at peace with you simply and most profoundly because we rest in Jesus. Lord, keep that richness, the heart of who we are as a church. Thank you for the ways in which it manifests itself. Encourage our elders and our leaders as they seek to Guide us and encourage us in the truths that do not change, that your name may be glorified and that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, gather together in the great equality that comes through faith.